everybody. Welcome to the first episode of the Lights Out Podcast, a dark take on a paranormal and true crime show. I'm your host, Josh, and I also have my brother here, who is also my producer, Joel. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, absolutely, bro. Happy to be here. I know we're super excited about this, so uh, let's get to it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, this is a passion project for both of us. We've actually been both interested in the paranormal and some of these darker crimes and serial killers for a very long time. So we're very excited to team up on this podcast and bring you some of the craziest stories you'll probably ever hear in disturbing detail sometimes. But before I get into the episode, which is called The Devil Made Me Do It, I wanted to mention that we will be releasing new episodes of the show every Friday on all platforms, wherever you can find podcasts, we will be there as well as a video version of the podcast, which we record here in the studio to YouTube every Friday as well. So make sure you check out that in addition to subscribing and following the show on iTunes and Spotify or wherever you listen. But without further ado, let's get into the devil made me do it. Our story begins in July, 1980, the youngest of the three Glatzel boys was planning to help his only sister, 25-year-old Debbie, and her boyfriend, 19-year-old Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, move into their new rental house in Newtown, Connecticut. Arnie and Debbie were planning to move in along with Arnie's mother, Judy, and his three younger sisters, Janice, Wanda, and Mary. The house was only a few minutes' drive from Debbie's family's home in Brookfield, Connecticut. The couple wanted a change of scenery from the crime-ridden streets of Bridgeport, Connecticut, so the quiet, woodsy town of Newtown seemed the perfect place. Newtown is a historic place dating back to the 1700s and contains many Gothic churches and weathered graveyards that have stood the test of time. These monuments stand for a belief in the higher good. But wherever there is good, there is also an ancient evil that can be found lurking in the shadows. It's always interesting to me that many of these paranormal cases can be traced back to the New England area where early civilization in America started. And it makes you wonder why there's so much haunted activity there. Debbie's parents, Judy and Carl Glatzel, were hesitant about the move because of Arnie and Debbie's financial situation. Debbie was a dog groomer at Brookfield Pet Motel, and Arnie worked as a tree surgeon at Wright Tree Service. Carl and Judy nevertheless gave their support and even a few hundred dollars to help get their new life started. By all indications, the Glatzel family appeared to be a normal, loving family with parents that had their children's best interests in mind. On July 2nd, the Glatzel family as well as Arnie and Debbie went to the rental house to clean up the place before Debbie and Arnie moved in. For whatever reason, there was one room that still had furniture in it. The master bedroom still had a large canopied waterbed in the center of it, which made it difficult to clean the room. The prior tenant told them that they would be dismantling it and moving it very soon, and the Glatzel brothers saw this as an opportunity to have some fun and began jumping on the bed as you would expect young boys to do. But while they're jumping on the bed, all of a sudden the bedroom door mysteriously slammed shut on its own, locking the boys inside. The young boys start freaking out and begin frantically trying to get the door opened, but it wouldn't budge. Finally, after many attempts, they were able to pry the door open. The boys were a bit shaken up by it, but they decided to put the incident behind them, and they continued to help their sister and Arnie with sweeping and cleaning. A short while later, while they were cleaning around the bed, David was startled when he was confronted by what he later described as an old man who was wearing a dirty plaid shirt with patchy holes in it. The old man pointed at him and said, beware, and then proceeded to shove David onto the bed. And then as quickly as the old man appeared, he then vanished into thin air as David rolled off of the bed. Terrified, 
Davin runs out of the house in tears and refuses to return for the remainder of the day. Later that night, back at the Glatzel family house, David tells his brothers about the old man he has seen and that this old man is real and that he could still see him even when his eyes were closed. But now the old man appeared to him like a beast with deep black eyes like bottomless pits, a razor thin face with animal features including jagged, rotten teeth, pointed ears, devilish horns, and hooves. Holy shit. I can't even imagine being in this situation and seeing an old man for one just appear out of nowhere in front of me, but then to have them disappear and then only to reappear as this demonic beast. Yeah, dude, absolutely. And what's even more shocking for me is that this being their first encounter with the old man and how they already got physical. Like it, the old man already pushed them and all that. That's just mind blowing. Oh, I know. That's probably the most alarming thing is that this entity already is physically assaulting David. Whatever this devilish beast was started threatening David, telling him that he would inflict endless pain on anyone that moved into the rental house. So that night, the Glatzel family left and they left their sheepdog, George, back at the rental house in Newtown. When the family returned the next day, they found their dog, George, terrified. And when they looked around to see what he might have been terrified of, they saw that he had frantically clawed at the basement door to escape the presence of something the dog encountered during the night. Okay, so yeah, first off, you know, it, it's shocking how the family just leaves their their dog at the rental home. But I guess it's possible they were doing that to protect the property or just have somebody there. But not only that, then they return and there's claw marks all over the doors and the dog is has some blood on them and it looks like a really bad scene. I mean, who would want to move into a place if that happened the first night, right? Yeah, and it would definitely make you wonder about what's in the basement if the dog was trying so hard to get out of it or into it. Potentially, maybe the dog was trying to get into the basement to try to see what was there if something was indeed taunting him. But that following day, David told his mother and sister about the encounter he had had with the creepy old man. But they dismissed his strange story almost immediately and blamed it on the overactive imagination of a young boy. But this didn't stop David from telling others as he ended up telling Arnie about the encounter. Arnie, who was fond of his girlfriend's youngest brother, believed David and confirmed his story when he found bloody scratch marks on the basement door at the rental house where George had spent the previous night. Not only that, the dog appeared shaken, exhausted, his paws were bloodied, and his breath was labored. Yeah, so obviously the dog encountered something if he's shaken up to the point where his breathing isn't even normal and his paws are bloodied. I mean, I know dogs scratch at doors, but to the point where their paws are bloodied, that's a little concerning. Arnie has been quoted as saying that when I saw the scratches on the doors, I really started to question, well, maybe something is definitely wrong here. Once Debbie had heard what had happened, she spoke to Karen, who was a prior tenant of the rental house, who was still in the midst of vacating the premises as she still had some of her belongings there, including the waterbed. Debbie asked her if anything out of the ordinary had taken place during her time in the house, and to her surprise, Karen relayed stories about the apparition of a creepy old man, much like what David had described. Karen also said it was partly the reason she was moving. One example she gave was that she often heard her name whispered at night, long and ghostly, Karen, Karen. 
Late one night in total darkness, Karen saw the apparition of the old man appear, and she lay frozen in her bed as the old man slid into her bed and attempted to fondle her with icy hands. After hearing Karen's experience, Arnie and Debbie decided to reconsider moving in, despite their non-refundable $550 deposit. So they started packing their stuff back up. As they moved their stuff back out of the rental home, Arnie's mother pulled up in the driveway. Arnie informed his mother that they were not going to move into the house after all. Arnie's mother was not happy to hear that they were moving out of the house that they were supposed to be moving into because she had just moved out of her apartment in order to come live with them and she didn't have anywhere else to go. And when Debbie and Arnie expressed their concerns about the rental house and what Karen had told them, Arnie's mother did not believe them and decided to move into the house anyways. Over the next few days, ghostly phenomena began to occur frequently within the Glatzel's small ranch home, located off a long, quiet dirt drive not far from the Brookfield Town Center. It got to the point where David said he could see the old man in his mind, and the old man would emerge out of an old well built into the foundation of the rental home in Newtown and glide above the trees towards their home in Brookfield. This frightened David so much that he became hysterical, pleading to his confused family to protect him as this ghostly old man came closer to him. Just think about that. This kid, no matter what he does, cannot escape from the old man, this, this beast man. And not only that, but his only support system, his family, really have no idea what's going on. And I mean, they would think that there's, this kid is crazy. Literally, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he comes across crazy. I mean, to say that there's this old creepy man that's coming after him, coming out of an 11-year-old boy, I mean, you're going to question whether or not he's really seeing this or this is just some fabric of his imagination that he created. Yeah, and they also mentioned that David has never been, you know, this kid is 11 years old, so he's not going to be watching scary movies or he's he's not going to be being entertained by any of those ideas. So that just makes it that much more real for him is think about it. Like at least people who see scary movies, they have some, some of like a, a heads up of what's out there and, and what's going on. But David, on the other hand, I mean, can you imagine like, the fear seeing something that like that if you've never seen anything remotely frightening in your life then that's going to be a horrifying scene for you and would cause you to act like the way that he's acting completely hysterical out of control because the amount of fear that he is feeling has got to be next level and the other thing i wanted to point out is the fact that he would see this old man or whatever demonic entity this is emerge out of the old well built into this property. Now, these homes can go back hundreds of years. So you wonder what may have happened in this well, or like you had talked to me about before the show, that the well could have been some type of portal for these entities to come through. At some point in time, it was created. Yeah, I mean, this house being around since the 1700s, possibly, there could have been a lot more than just a well going on, but that could have been the one last thing that was standing on the property that no one would question something bad with a well. That is a perfect spot for demonic entities or any of those things to like step into. Absolutely. At one point, David yelled that the old man was now at the front door 
of the family home, and three mysterious loud knocks announced its arrival. And at this point, Arnie, Debbie, and Judy were starting to take David's tale much more seriously. In fact, Judy attempted splashing holy water on the door and then at the windows and anywhere David said the entity was trying to get in, but it was too late. David said it somehow found a way into the attic and waited in the hot rafters of the home as he helplessly and hysterically tried to seek shelter. That's when they started hearing strange sounds of banging, scratching, and objects being dragged and shifted around in the attic. Despite all of this, Arnie bravely went up to the attic to investigate. And once he got up there, there wasn't much to find except for old dusty storage boxes and just an eerie silence. Arnie felt ice cold chills wash over him when he got up there and he heard the flutter of distant whispers. And it was at this point in time that we'll later find out that they had just experienced the first stages of demonic infestation. Within a day, David explained that the old man in the attic now had a bunch of helpers, 42 of them to be exact, and they had poured out several boxes that Arnie had brought back with him from the rental home in Newtown. David was even able to describe each of them individually, hideous demonic monsters, bloody and deformed, mutilated, each answering to the beast man by number. They paraded invisibly around the house, constantly fighting with each other, threatening the boy with torture and terrifying him with their grotesque grimaces and frightful stares with glowing, glaring eyes that moved wildly independently of each other. They teased and taunted David, taking weapons such as clubs and whips and pretending to deal the helpless boy a blow, but stopping inches away from making contact. The demons were testing the water, slowly breaking the boy down and making him theirs. David was able to identify and describe each being in horrid, vivid detail. Up until now, the family hoped that there was an explanation for all of this, perhaps a psychological one, and wondered if it could be all in the young boy's mind. However, the next few hours would assure them something very real was happening. A terrible physical assault on David commences. An orchestrated psychological attack on the family began at the same time. The old man told David all he wanted was one thing something David never even knew he had, his soul. If David offered it to him, he would leave him alone. If not, he would stay forever to torment him. David refused, proclaiming his love for his family and God, and his punishment came swift and strong. No longer were the helpers faking their blows. David was repeatedly punched, slapped, clubbed, whipped, and beaten by the invisible evil entities. The family was helpless to do anything to stop the attacks and could only watch the horrible ordeal and wonder what was happening to their youngest son, who indeed appeared to be being beaten and battered by unseen forces. As a parent, I can only imagine how traumatic and horrible this experience must have been to see their son physically beaten by invisible entities. Crazy. Yeah, I'm sure being in that house at the time and, and the emotion and, and all of that was that was going on while David, like 11 year old boy, just getting beaten and tortured, literally, and how much pain this kid is going through. I couldn't imagine what it was like in that house during that time. Something that I'm sure they couldn't even believe was happening. The sounds of the physical abuse were audible whenever David was slapped and punched. You could literally hear it. David's body went through the motions of receiving blows and showed signs of the attacks in the form of welts, 
marks, and bruises that would quickly fade away. David would at times be strangled with visible indentations of hands around his throat as he gasped for air and attempted to fight off the invisible assailant. There was no way to explain what was happening, but it appeared real enough to those present and especially real to David. Holy shit. I could even imagine that as an adult, let alone a kid, to have to go through something like that. Absolutely terrifying. But missing from the majority of these incidents and attacks was their father, Carl, who was an earnest, hardworking refrigeration mechanic working 60 hours a week and spent a majority of his home time asleep. He ignored the situation in the beginning until it demanded his attention, yet he still remained silent on the matter. As for the oldest boy, Carl Jr., when he wasn't home, he was usually out with friends or riding his dirt bike and just so happened to miss the majority of the reported phenomena. He often taunted David and told him to stop making it all up. At this point, David's parents are desperate for help, especially his mother, Judy Gladsell, and that's when she turned to the church for help. Specifically, she reached out to Father James Dennis, the pastor at St. Joseph's Church in Brookfield Center. Father Dennis, a well-respected elderly priest for several decades, listened to Judy's horrible accounts of the incidents taking place in the Glatzell home. Father Dennis had heard of such things before, but feared to get involved due to the psychological toll a previous exorcism he had been involved in a decade earlier had taken on him and so he declined to help. He was also planning to visit his mother in Ireland and was not sure if his health and stamina were prepared for what he knew needed to be done. So that's when he decided to contact Ed and Lorraine Warren in the neighboring town of Monroe, who he knew specialized in such strange occurrences and how to battle them. Now the Warrens have called themselves a number of different names, ghost hunters, psychic investigators, and parapsychologists. But at this particular time, Ed Warren was a renowned demonologist and Lorraine has always been a clairvoyant. And because of this, and because of the cases that they had worked on, they attracted a lot of media attention, and, and that's why they have become some of the most legendary paranormal investigators of all time, just by, based upon the cases they've worked, like the Amityville Horror case, which happened several years prior to this. But nevertheless, they were definitely the top of their field and were often called upon in situations like this. Not only have the Warrens been investigating paranormal for over 25 years, but they also have assisted in more than 400 exorcisms, which would make sense for why the priest would reach out to them in this particular case, because it's definitely trending towards an exorcism is going to be needed in order to solve the problem with David. But not only that, Ed's unique expertise in demonology really came into play, the study of demons and specifically relating to the Catholic Church and their definition of what demonology is, which is very interesting because sometimes the Catholic Church has even said they have no idea who these two are and they've, they've definitely drawn their fair share of skepticism from different members of the paranormal community as well as the church itself. But regardless, the Warrens answered the call to action and they headed to the Glatzel home the same evening they were called. During the half-hour drive to Brookfield, Lorraine had a powerful psychic feeling that they were beginning a profound and dangerous case. She's actually been quoted as saying, When the priest called, he told us about this case, about the strange things that were happening. There is something definitely wrong, and I believe it could be possession. With them, they brought a good friend, Dr. Anthony Gengrasso, so they could have a medical evaluation done on David. They were told that David had previously been diagnosed with having a learning disability, something Dr. Gengrasso was quite familiar with. 
as he had a son with the same disability. The Warrens primarily did this because they wanted to be sure that they were not confusing a medical disorder with a supernatural one, which is a very smart thing to do. On the hot and humid evening of July 9, 1980, the Warrens pulled into the lone dirt road that led to the Glatzel home. Lorraine recalls, We went to this house this hot night I can remember, like the steam and moisture coming off the ground. It was a weird night when we arrived there, because strange things began the moment they arrived. Both Ed Warren and Dr. Giangrasso were tripped by unseen forces on their way up the steps in the front of the Glatzel home. Ed recalls this incident in great detail. When I started up the front steps, I tripped. I'm not a particularly clumsy man. I hadn't stubbed my foot against the step. I hadn't loosened my grip on the banister, but there I was tripping. It was as if an invisible hand had grabbed my ankle. I went right down. And it so happened that the doctor found this funny. We were close friends and so I knew he was laughing out of affection and not malice. But when I explained to him that I really hadn't tripped, he went, sure, sure, and made a joke about how clumsy I was. Then he came right behind me and stumbled too. Lorraine also said, when entering the house, there was a tremendous tension. You could cut it with a knife. And what's even more interesting is that once the Warrens got inside, David already knew about what had happened to them on their way into the house and mentioned it to them when he met them for the first time. And when Ed asked how David knew about what had just happened outside, David laughed and said, The beast told me. After a full medical examination, Dr. Jean Grasso declared that David had a slight learning disability but was medically okay. The Warrens interviewed the entire Glatzel family minus Carl Sr. and Carl Jr. and found everyone to be sincere, credible, but most importantly, terrified. Lorraine recalls her first encounter with David, and she said we were sitting there at the table talking. Now we would watch David and he would be doodling, you know, drawing or something like that. And he'd be concentrating on what he was doing, and then he would look up, and it was no longer a little 11-year-old boy. Lorraine also said that while Ed interviewed David, she saw a black mist form around David, which told me we were dealing with something of a negative nature. Lorraine even went into more detail to say that she was able to discern that the entity appeared to be a powerful, blacker-than-black spirit mass that centered on David. And when Lorraine asked David where he saw the beast, David's affirmation concurred with her psychic vision. Then out of nowhere, a spectacular outbreak of poltergeist activity erupted in full view of everyone. Loud knocks and tapping started happening throughout the house. A leather belt and a flower vase levitated up and flew across the room. The demonic old man was showing his presence without even being summoned. Ed Warren communicated with this entity by speaking out loud, and the entity replied with more loud bangs, taps, and knocks, which Ed described as sounding like somebody hammering on the basement ceiling with a wooden 2x4. The entity appeared to show intelligence, and seeing David was the only one that could see and hear the beast, it spoke to Ed using David as a medium. This entity claimed to be Satan, and Ed, knowing that demons are known to lie and deceive, and often claimed to be Satan, challenged the unseen force to throw him out the window. When it didn't happen, Ed mocked the entity and told it that when he got the church involved, they would send it straight back to hell. The beast then assured Ed that nothing would be able to drive him out and they would all suffer for their interference. So it became obvious to the Warrens that David was genuinely under demonic attack and was in danger of becoming completely possessed at any point in time. 
They were mostly concerned for the family's safety because of the natural progression of such a demonic attack had moved extremely fast in David's case. The family described all the signs of initial demonic infestation and David was already displaying signs of precognition and clairvoyance. Poltergeist phenomena had heightened to the point where physical attacks were being carried out on the boy. David could see the beast and his helpers and hear their voices. It was past the point of oppression and possession was the next progressive step. The Warrens explained to the family the serious problem they were facing and that they would gather the necessary information needed in order for the Roman Catholic Church to sanction an exorcism. So the Warrens really came in and just started witnessing the phenomena firsthand and that was their evidence that they used in order to give it to the church so that they would hopefully sanction an exorcism for David. The Catholic Encyclopedia defines exorcism as the act of driving out or warding off demons or evil spirits from persons, places, or things which are believed to be possessed or infested by them, or are liable to become victims or instruments of their malice. So by definition, that's clearly what needed to happen in this case. In the meantime, the Glatzels were given holy candles as well as salt and were told to pray to keep David's demons at bay. While awaiting the church to conduct a formal investigation, the Glatzel family home was subjected to all sorts of terrifying paranormal activity, most of it centered on young David. Objects were thrown about, strange noises and voices were heard, cloven hoof prints were found in Judy's bedroom, a scaly claw-like hand materialized and grabbed people's ankles as they walked by, personal items were destroyed or disappeared altogether, and even a plastic toy dinosaur walked out of a room and spoke to David, telling him that he would be punished in retaliation for allowing the Warrens to interfere. Wow. That's absolutely terrifying if all of this is true. And the fact that not only has old man called upon his helpers, but they're taking shape into these stuffed animals. They're literally stuff. possessing the objects literally in the house. That's crazy. And the demons are obviously pissed off that the Warrens are there. And they know that the Warrens are going to bring the church in. I'm sure they can feel that or that was communicated to them. And... They were very worried about this, so this is them retaliating against the family by showing their force. The oldest Glatzel boy, Carl Jr., was used by the demons to escalate arguments among the family that usually led to physical violence. As David explained, several demons were assigned to Carl Jr., constantly whispering in his ear and unconsciously suppressing him, causing him to start trouble and instigate fights. The Warren stated that Carl Jr. was under demonic oppression and it was part of Satan's sinister plan to use young Carl as a catalyst and when physical violence broke out, Carl Jr. joined in beating his mother, sister, and younger brothers with apparent joy. He was being used as a demonic pawn in order to add pandemonium and instability to the decaying family structure because that's typically what demons will do in this type of situations. They want to break down the family as much as possible, which will allow them to possess them much easier. Basically making that family experience as much negativity as possible, uh, which is what they definitely feed on. The demons continued to relentlessly punish and torture David. His hair was ripped from his head. His body was forced to do sit-ups until he vomited. He was choked and strangled by invisible hands. David even levitated on two separate occasions, and he was deprived of sleep and hardly given a moment's rest from the torment. On August 13th, his 12th birthday, the family tried hard to have a moment of normalcy. However, David's demons had other plans and instead beat him and destroyed his birthday cake. That's fucking evil, man. On this poor kid's birthday, they're even fucking with him. That's fucking crazy. Judy, Arnie, and Debbie 
were often up late at night saying prayers for David as he came under these violent attacks. David would hiss like a snake, groan and wail disgustingly and use vile profanity in words that he would have never possibly known. He would even quote the Bible and Milton's Paradise Lost as well as speak in a bizarre language nobody could even identify. Most involved was Arnie, who often taunted and challenged the demons to leave the helpless boy alone and to instead pick on him. He would in fact scream at the demons, take me, leave my little buddy alone. He literally challenged the demons to take him on, which proved to be a very, very bad mistake. When you challenge the demonic, it doesn't act at the particular given moment. Instead, it waits until you're the most vulnerable and when you least suspect it. Arnie definitely had the demon's attention. Afterwards, Ed and Lorraine Warren were very concerned for Arnie, so much so that they notified the police to keep an eye on him because they know what can happen if you challenge a demonic entity. They will accept that challenge and will most likely make you pay. Eventually, as the Warrens had unfortunately predicted, David came under full demonic possession on September 8th. His face contorted completely into an unrecognizable, disturbing expression. His stomach and head bloated to nearly double in size, and he attempted to attack his own family members with knives, fireplace pokers, and anything else he could get his hands on. He even broke his mother Judy's nose and held his grandmother at knife point after she attempted to pray the rosary with him. Oftentimes, he'd have to be wrestled to the ground or wrapped in a bedsheet by Carl Jr. and Arnie in order to prevent him from injuring anyone or himself. During one of these episodes, the demon in David proclaimed that Arnie will kill with a knife, and this statement was caught on tape. Even Carl Sr. finally broke down and admitted that he too had seen the face of the beast, and he thought he was losing his mind, which brought him to admit to his family that what young David was saying was true, and he had been in denial. What is what's crazy about that, though, is the family waited until David was literally completely possessed to even take notice in what's going on. Even um, I guess they, they did get Ed and Lorraine Warren involved and they knew something was going on. But maybe the dad was just in complete denial about what his son was going through and was just avoiding it at all costs. Like, what do you think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to, he's obviously the breadwinner of the family and he's working 60 hour weeks. So you can imagine that after 60 hours of working, you probably are extremely tired. And the last thing you want to deal with is something like this, you know, especially if you're trying to sleep. So I think that plays a part of it, but it is interesting that as his father, that he wouldn't have been more concerned about the situation, especially if his son is physically being assaulted by these demonic forces. So once Carl Sr. finally realized what was happening to young David, he was at a complete loss at what to do in this situation for him and his family or how to stop the torment of his son. It was also at this point that the entire Glatzel family were convinced that what they were facing was the real thing, a violent haunting, a deranged poltergeist outbreak, or an actual demonic attack in possession. And they didn't care what it was called, but they just desperately wanted it to stop. As these horrifying incidents at the Glatzel household continued to intensify, the Warrens contacted the Archdiocese of Bridgeport and told them of the family's ordeal. Acting Bishop Walter Curtis dispatched several priests to investigate the validity of the claim of possession. Father Francis Vergulock of Stamford headed the investigation, along with Father James Grosso, Father Steve DiGiovanni, and Father William Malia. 
At one point during the investigation, Ed Warren and Father Grosso witnessed David levitate up to the ceiling of his bedroom, and Father Grosso became so terrified of this that he literally renewed his faith in God after witnessing this event. The other priests were at first skeptical about the situation, but they soon realized that they may be coming face to face with the devil himself. After conversing with the Warrens, the priests, and the Glatzel family, Father Virgulok agreed an exorcism was in order, but needed to have permission granted from the bishop. He collected evidence such as witness testimony and audio recordings made by the family of the child under possession. These were submitted to the Archdiocese of Bridgeport for review. What's crazy is that a major exorcism was not initially sanctioned by the bishop. Instead, four deliverance sessions took place at the end of August and in early September. One was a holy mass held in the Glatzell home, and the others in the rectory of St. Joseph's Church in the center of Brookfield. The deliverance sessions were actually minor rites of exorcism, but without the granting of the reading of the Roman ritual, the Roman Catholic Church's official manuscript contained the rites of exorcism. So it's kind of like a mini version of a full exorcism. On all occasions, the demons and David refused to depart, and he needed to be restrained as he attempted to attack all those present, displaying superhuman strength and needing his father, Arnie, and the other priests involved to restrain him. Ed remembers this event in great detail. Now this 11-year-old boy could become extremely strong. I've seen nights when it would take four and five men to hold him down. I saw him one time when he actually levitated, had extreme strength, and terrible obscenities would come from him. Father Virgulok headed the exorcism and several times the possessing entity threatened to kill David if the ritual continued. Indeed, several times David was brought to the brink of death by his demons. One time he dropped over and showed no signs of life, only to attack those that got near enough to attempt taking vital signs from him. The beast threatened all present with pain and death and twisted the truth into malicious lies, accusing those present, especially the priests, with the vilest of obscene crimes. The young priests involved were severely traumatized by the horrific events and eventually became victims of demonic attack themselves, even being assaulted in their own rectories and followed by black apparitions. The reality of demonic possession had them terrified, some of them even needing medication to cope with the trauma of the events. If that doesn't speak to the severity of this possession, I don't know what does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the fact that it's happening to everybody there as well, it doesn't matter what your role is, everyone's going through it. Absolutely crazy. Whatever this beast was proved to be a powerful adversary and proclaimed that David's soul now belonged to him and said no priest could ever drive him out. Once the deliverance sessions proved to be failures, the Warrens ascertained that the only way to truly free David from his demons would be to perform the major rite of exorcism, which Bishop Curtis had not yet given permission to do as the case was still bogged down in church politics and procedures. Very inconvenient, for sure. The Warrens tried to explain to the church that time was of the essence and that the major rite of exorcism was needed and had to be performed immediately. While David's case continued to be investigated by the clergy, the Warrens warned the Brookfield Police Department in October that there was a strong risk of physical violence and potential danger in the Glatzel household due to incidents of supernatural nature. In fact, one night, Arnie decided to leave the house to run a few errands. Arnie said that, Once I turned on the car, the engine started to race and a dark figure appeared out of nowhere in front of my car. And then the figure's arm lifted up and pointed to the tree in front of me. All of a sudden, the vehicle just took off. I didn't have any control. And whatever this dark figure was sent Arnie crashing into a tree where luckily he was left unharmed, but completely terrified by this apparent attack. 
So now not only David is being targeted, now Arnie Johnson is being targeted by this beast, this old man, this entity, whatever it is, and physically trying to to hurt this person. It's it's just crazy. Yeah, it really is. Like, I mean, having somebody appear out of nowhere in the dark is one thing, but a dark figure that then points to a tree and says, you're going to go into this tree. And then the next thing you know, you're flying in your car into a tree. I mean, at this point, I, I don't think I'm challenging this demon anymore. That's for sure. As winter drew near, David's attacks seemed to lessen in frequency. Debbie and Arnie needed to get away from it all and decided to lease a small apartment from owner Alan Bono. It was convenient for the couple because the apartment was right by the kennels and was only a few miles from the Glatzel home. Arnie, Debbie, and Alan spent a lot of time together, and both men frequently went to the bar and became the best of friends. The friendship lasted only a short time, however, as the beast was about to fulfill the terrible prophecy it had made the previous summer when it was challenged by Arnie. But soon after moving into the apartment, Arnie started showing odd behavior similar to David's. According to Debbie, Arnie started to experience trance-like states hallucinations and would have no memory of them afterwards and before david went through the exorcisms arnie was a young hard-working man who loved sports fishing and having a good time with family and friends just a normal average guy and everyone spoke highly of arnie johnson including ed and lorraine warren arnie was such a compassionate young man a low-key person never once did debbie ever see him show any sort of violent behavior until february 16th 1981 In 1981, the clean-cut town of Brookfield, Connecticut was celebrating its 193rd year without a homicide when that street came to an abrupt end. Because on February 16, 1981, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson murdered Alan Bono with a 5-inch pocket knife. It took place during an argument that began in Alan's apartment when Alan insisted that Debbie, Arnie, and his three sisters who were visiting for the day stay for dinner. Alan had been drinking wine the better part of the day, and Debbie, seeing that he was intoxicated and becoming increasingly obnoxious and threatening, attempted to leave with Arnie's sisters. This agitated Alan, and he told them not to leave, and then followed them down the stairs towards the exit. And Alan attempted to block the passage to the doorway and ended up grabbing a hold of young Mary Johnson's arm. It was at this moment that the demons Arnie had taunted and challenged in the prior months decided to take their revenge on him. During the argument, or shortly before, we're not entirely sure, Arnie came under full demonic possession. He first attacked Debbie, knocking her down and kicking her violently in the stomach. He then approached Alan, who had his fists up ready to fight and was saying, come on, I'll fight you. And that's when there was a flashing glint of silver in the air and then all of a sudden, Alan Bono drops to the ground without Arnie even getting near enough to get in a swing. He just appeared to have collapsed for no apparent reason. At this point in time, Arnie is also growling like a wild animal, whereas Wanda would later say, like the Hulk, and then took off into the woods behind the kennel as Debbie and his sisters frantically called after him. It was then that they noticed that Alan Bono appeared to be bleeding from multiple stab wounds in the chest and stomach, and several feet away lying on the ground was Arnie's bloody opened knife. The girls were afraid to touch it because it appeared to be glowing. Debbie then ran back into the apartment and frantically called her mother and said there had been a fight and they needed to get down to the kennels right away. In the background, Debbie could hear young David screaming, the beast did it. No one saw it. He just killed with a knife. He went into Arnie and stabbed Alan. All the helpers are there laughing. Arnie didn't do it. The beast stabbed Alan five times with a knife. At this point, Carl Sr. and Judy are racing down to the kennels and got there in several minutes. Upon pulling in, they were met by Debbie, who was hysterical and in tears. Carl Sr. asked if anyone had called for help, 
and when they said no, he ran into the apartment and dialed 911. Paramedics arrived shortly after and, and began resuscitation efforts on Alan Bono. Meanwhile, Brookfield police began to scan the area for Arnie Johnson, who was now their number one suspect. Alan Bono was raced to Danbury Hospital and pronounced dead on arrival at 7.39 p.m. from multiple stab wounds, with one going all the way from his stomach up to his heart. Arnie Johnson was found approximately an hour later wandering aimlessly on Silvermine Road, about a mile from the murder site. Coincidentally, though, he was found by the same ambulance driver who had just finished taking Alan Bono to the hospital, and Arnie was reported as being in some type of daze, and he said he might have hurt someone, but he can't remember. And a few moments later, the police arrived and, without any resistance, arrested him, in which shortly thereafter he was charged with first-degree murder. Sitting in a cell, dumbfounded and in shock, Arnie Johnson spoke incoherently and then fell asleep, where he would stay, awaiting his trial. What's crazy about you know the murder and, and what took place was the, the beast had so much power to, in a split second, just hop into Arnie's body, basically, and take full control. Uh, that's just so mind-blowing. And then he doesn't remember at all. Yeah, that's that's power beyond anything of this realm, that's for sure. I mean, that is some supernatural abilities there. Not only was this the first murder in 193 years in Brookfield, but because of this, it made national headline news within only a few days. Arnie's attorney was Martin J. Manella, who was a seasoned young trial lawyer from Waterbury who took the case for free after reading about it in the papers because he was going to attempt to enter the unprecedented plea of not guilty by virtual of demonic possession. And this is the first time in American history that this has ever been done. After conversing with the Johnson, Glatzel families, and the Warrens, Manella was sure he would be able to demonstrate to the court and the jury that Arnie Johnson was indeed possessed at the time of the murder. He planned to use the members of the Glatzel family, the Warrens, and the priests involved as witnesses and present physical evidence such as recordings of David under possession, prophesizing that Arnie would kill with a knife. This lawyer's even quoted as saying, we're coming up with something completely unusual in American law. We're dealing with the existence of the devil. In my opinion, this is a very difficult argument because of the separation of church and state and to bring religion into the courtroom or the belief in demons altogether is very interesting. It was at this point in time that Debbie Glatzel went public with the story behind the story, telling news reporters of their horrible ordeal that has plagued the family for months and about the possession case of David that had recently been shrouded in secrecy. Judy Glatzel came forward as well, telling of their terrible situation and the failure of the three minor exorcisms and publicly pleaded for the church to sanction a full exorcism. The story of young David Glatzel's burden slowly emerged and became public knowledge and the center of controversy and debate among believers and skeptics alike. While news and media crews began flocking to the town of Brookfield and mail flooded the local post office with literally thousands of letters from around the world, the nation looked on with interest about the man who claimed the devil made him do it. The jury was selected and as the trial was set to begin, thousands pondered the ramifications of the case on talk radio television and in print. It even made the front page news for days on end. Magazines such as People carried it as a cover story, and the trashier tabloids such as the National Enquirer detailed the unbelievable events that took place in the Glatzel home the previous summer that accumulated with the murder of an innocent man. Was the devil really going to be put on trial? 
All the attention, though, was short-lived when acting Danbury Superior Court Judge Robert J. Callahan said he would not allow the demon defense in his courtroom. He was quoted as saying, evidence of demonic possession is simply not relevant. It would be incompetent evidence and I will not allow it. At what point does evidence prove demonic possession or just it could be a million other things? Like, how do you narrow it down to just demonic possession yeah. in this case? I mean, exactly. Like, they don't have any tests that could somehow, you know, um, test Arnie with if, if he did have a demon contained within him or something. Um, what? It's just basically people's uh, testimony, basically. Testimony and, I guess, recordings of what they captured with Arnie. But I think it's especially difficult in this case because they were studying David and not Arnie. The only thing we really know is that the Warrens, you know, warned the police about Arnie and that they should keep an eye on him because he had challenged the demon. But at this point in time, I don't think anybody was taking him too seriously or the Warrens too seriously for that matter. Right, right. Arnie's lawyer, Manila, countered with several different tactics, claiming that the details about David Glatzel's case were relevant to his client's actions and will still eventually be brought into the courtroom. Judge Callahan remained firm and shut down the plea repeatedly suppressing any references to possession. Arnie's trial commenced in Danbury Superior Court on October 28, 1981. Arnie Johnson refused to plead guilty, maintaining that he did not remember the crime. The state prosecutors claimed that the murder was the result of a drunken brawl fueled by a secret love triangle between Debbie Glatzel and Alan Bono, something Debbie passionately denied. Arnie's three young sisters were forced to testify on the stand what they saw that night, which contradicted the statements that were taken from them the night of the murder. The girls were brought to tears before the court, and they said that they were tricked by the Brookfield police into making statements that they actually witnessed Arnie kill Alan with a knife on the night of the murder. However, on the stand, they all swore to not seeing it happen at all. That's very interesting. And I mean, it could just be them protecting Arnie, or in fact, did they really witness Alan just falling to the floor and Arnie never physically assaulting him with a knife? Yeah, it's it's like a, a supernatural attack, basically, right? Like that's what they're trying to argue. It's all invisible. It's, uh, somebody just gets these stab wounds invisibly. Like I don't know. It's I think I find it really hard to prove something like that in court for sure. The problem was is that the girl's testimony was the only thing remotely connected to the plea of possession, as they swore on the stand that they did not, in fact, see Arnie fight or stab Alan, and that Alan simply went down. And Arnie made noises like a wild animal during the attack that seemed to come from, quote unquote, multiple voice boxes. You know, they did mention since the Beast did have 42 helpers, it, it is possible that more than just one of them can uh, enter, you know, Arnie's body and, and have control. And with the multiple voices, that that's, makes me think that's what happened. On November 24th, after a day of a deadlocked jury Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was found not guilty of first-degree murder, but charged with manslaughter in the first degree and was sentenced to 30 years in Summers Prison in Summers, Connecticut. The Warrens were convinced that because the Catholic Church refused to take the proper steps to have a major exorcism sanctioned, not only had a life been taken, but David was still not completely free from his demons. David continued to have visitations from the beast who bragged about the murder to him. Due to the controversy and the attention the case received, the Archdiocese of Bridgeport refused to comment on the case other than stating that no exorcisms were performed and they had never heard of Arnie Johnson. The priests involved were dispersed and scattered and told not to speak to the press about the incident. It's very intriguing that the Catholic Church is seemingly covering up this case completely and refusing to admit that exorcisms were performed. 
that's very fishy as well. So it's either somebody's lying here or they're just covering things up. I don't know if we'll ever know. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely a valid point. Like it's, it's very fishy that if the Catholic church was truly the only people that could handle a situation like this, uh, it's just crazy how long the process was. Like they were waiting weeks, but that was just for a minor exorcism. Like we need a major exorcism. I, I don't understand why couldn't have been expedite that right away like this is a priority one like go do it you know yeah and i mean if everything is true in this case a man's life would have been spared if this man truly was murdered by demonic entities that entered arnie uh, if the catholic church had just gotten their shit together and gotten a major exorcism sanctioned right away this may have all been avoided completely absolutely absolutely The Glatzels and the Warrens said the Roman Catholic Church had turned their backs on them to avoid controversy and scrutiny, and the only way to totally and successfully free David of his demons was to seek help outside of the country. So while the trial was in full swing, the Glatzel family took an emergency trip to Quebec, Canada, where the Warrens arranged for a gifted exorcist named Father Deschamps to exorcise the remaining demons with a classical form of exorcism called the laying of the hands. The Warrens had submitted an 18-page report on the possession case of David Glatzel to Father Deschamps, who carefully reviewed the circumstances before arranging the Glatzels to make the long trip to Canada. On November 7, 1982, David was finally completely exercised in less than 30 minutes by Father Deschamps. Whoa. 30 minutes. It was all it took. Yeah, that's incredible. Again, for a gifted exorcist, too. So maybe these other priests or, you know, the initial clergy they contacted just weren't the right people or just weren't high enough in their abilities to perform exorcists. I don't know. It almost sounds like they were incompetent in a way of how serious this matter was and what David was experiencing. They probably had no clue what was actually going on either that or they just had something against the warrens or something and they just didn't believe the warrens or any of the evidence that they collected which seems hard to believe especially since they did have recordings of of different events that happened so i don't know man it's crazy that it only took 30 minutes for father deschamps to perform the exorcism because the demon that had raised such havoc since july of 1980 identified itself before departing as is expected in such cases but not before causing momentary havoc in the small church by breaking windows and opening and slamming the doors. Speaking through another priest, Father McEwen, who acted as a medium during the session and allowed the demon to speak through him, the beast finally revealed its true identity. It was not 42 demons. It was one. It was an archdevil known as Beelzebub. Not only was David freed from this demon, but the Glatzels and the Warrens learned from Father Deschamps the true origin of the evil encountered because you got to think for months the glatzels were wondering why they were chosen to be subjected to such horrors and what had they done to deserve this why was young david an innocent happy 11 year old singled out and tormented and possessed by demons how could god let this happen they wondered and father Deschamps had the answer the glatzels had been cursed not only had they been cursed but it was a satanic death curse that was levied by friends of theirs some friends of theirs, which was a family that they had met several winters ago while snowmobiling in upstate New York. Unbeknownst to the Glatzels, their friends who they curiously had a falling out with several years before were actually Satanists who hoped to gain a power by offering an innocent soul to the devil. The curse was placed on the first and last born son of the Glatzels, Carl Jr. and David. Although it focused its onslaught on both the boys, 
It chose David as the target for possession because he was the weaker of the two. Then came the most startling revelation of all. The curse had been placed on them the previous winter during their yearly snowmobile trip on February 16th, which is the exact day the demon possessed Arnie Johnson and forced him to kill with a knife one year later. Whoa. That's really trippy. That's really fucking trippy to think about. Oh, yeah. That the timing all lines up. Everything connected so well. Yeah. Everything seems connected through this. My God. Yeah, and in fact, the Warrens called it a total metaphysical connection, and I, I honestly agree with them. Father Deschamps explained that a death was preordained to take place on that day, and it didn't matter who it was. The unfortunate victim just happened to be Alan Bono, although he believed the original victim was supposed to have been Debbie Glatzel. He stated that when Arnie challenged the demons and David the previous summer, he had quite possibly saved the boy's life, but now he took the full burden of the demon's actions. In the aftermath of all this, Arnie only ended up spending five years in prison, during which time he married Debbie Glatzel and was released after being called a model prisoner. During his time in jail, however, he received several visitations from the beast and was stabbed by the entity on the anniversary of Alan Bono's death. Although David was freed from the demon, the family has never fully recovered from the horrible ordeal and would never be completely free of the residue of the demonic presence that had so personally interfered with their lives. Occasionally, strange occurrences still take place in the Glatzel home, including what appeared to be the ghost of Alan Bono, who appeared to David apparently unaware of his own death. The beast continued to visit David from time to time just to make itself known, and on one occasion appeared to Debbie's young son, Jason, during a raging fever. The demon told the boy it was personally responsible for thousands of deaths and atrocities during World War II, and said it would remain in Connecticut because man failed to point him out. As a chilling threat that would linger for years, the beast also promised the boy that one day it would kill again. So this case was documented by Gerald Brittle and Ed and Lorraine Warren in The Devil in Connecticut, and this was published as a book in 1983. But lawyers for the church had the books recalled and destroyed due to the fact it revealed the actual names of people involved, along with supposed secret information. Throughout the years, movies and TV shows have been made based upon this case. And in fact, most recently, we found out that The Conjuring 3 is going to be called The Devil Made Me Do It, and it's supposed to be released this September 10th, 2020, which I'm crossing my fingers because I really hope that this comes out. I'm very excited to see oh, yeah, I cannot The wait. Conjuring 3 on this case because this yeah. is just such a crazy one. So with all that being said, that is the story of the Glatzel family and Alan Bono, who was tragically murdered by Arnie or the demon. So... I don't know, man. What do you think about all this? What are your kind of final thoughts about this case? I mean, my final thoughts on this case basically is that whatever was possessing David, whatever this demon was or entity was so evil and just so demonic and, you know, everything under the sun of, of something horrific that could happen basically happened to this family, happened to the kid. It, it does make me wonder though about that spell or that form of witchcraft that that family that they met a few uh, years ago, what they did. And, you know, if it was just one spirit the whole time, that that thing is a whole nother level than your typical ghost in, in, in any other home, you know? Like, this is just absolutely um, crazy. It's kind of my outtake on the whole thing. I mean, I think it's really interesting that Father Deschamps said it was this one particular demon, but when you look at everything as a whole and, you you know, he explains that they were cursed by this 
family of Satanists. And it makes you wonder, like, do people really have this ability to conjure up these demons or use these curses in order to curse other individuals or families like this? Because to be able to wield this kind of power as any human being over another is truly something that is very scary for one. But I don't even know if any human being should be able to possess this type of power. And not only that, I think it's also possible that this area or the house may have already been haunted as well. I think the actual well being built into the rental house, there's always a possibility something may have come through there. And I mean, this is just a really old area and there's probably lots of paranormal activity there. So is it possible that, you know, maybe it was more than just, you know, the 42 demons and the one particular demon that was mentioned, or was it a, you know, maybe some of the loud knocking or tapping could have just been normal paranormal activity that occurred in this particular house because like we talked about earlier with the karen the prior tenant of the rental house she even experienced hearing voices and whispers and weird noises and things like that so it does make you wonder how much of it was a result of them being cursed as a family i think certainly david definitely got cursed with this demon but is some of the other paranormal activity that they reported or that the warrens witnessed just sort of normal paranormal activity for these houses that they live in. Yeah. I mean, exactly the, how old this neighborhood is and how long it's been around. Like there could have been a lot of other things that happened on that property uh, that, that were never disclosed to the Glatzell family and that well that was in the backyard of their property. What if it was just like a portal or an entry point for any type of haunting to come through and that particular haunting that took over David, yeah, it was spawned by those, those people. Um, what if it entered through that way and, and just, you know, unleashed basically? Yeah. I, I totally do believe though there were other paranormal activity that was occurring throughout the house, like bangs in the attic, like, taps on the walls, all those things. Another interesting point I wanted to mention was that David's older brother came out later in 2006 and said that he wanted to sue the Warrens for for this whole case because the Warrens really do have this way of, of investigating a paranormal case and then turning it into some type of media production or book or something like that. So a lot of people are skeptical of the Warrens for that and think that they're just you know, sort of frauds and they sort of make all this up in order to make up a good story to sell to, you know, Hollywood or whatever, or make a book out of it. And David's older brother also said that his brother suffered from a mental illness that was exploited by the Warrens. So from what we talked about earlier, we were saying it that this was just some type of minor, you know, learning disability. But according to the brother, Fairly recently, he's saying that he suffered from an actual mental illness, which could have been schizophrenia or something really serious. I mean, we don't know. And then this was exploited by the Warrens in order to sort of make this big, crazy story out of it. That's what's really, truly crazy about all of this is we just really don't know. I mean, what definitely stood out for me, though, was the Warrens uh, had investigated over 400 cases. And this one particular case, Lorraine did mention, though, that this particular case was one of the most like highly paranormal occurrence cases that they had ever encountered. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I've definitely looked into a number of their cases, and this one has some of the most crazy paranormal activity uh, out of all of them, for sure. So if it is true, then this was just an absolutely insane out of this world experience that they all went through, especially David. So absolutely insane. 
but we definitely want to know what you guys think about this case and this story. Let us know in the comments below or let us know on social media at Lights Out Cast what you guys thought of this episode. But we will go ahead and wrap up episode one there. Thank you guys for joining us for this first episode of the Lights Out Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode of the Lights Out Podcast, please subscribe and follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen, as well as on YouTube. And you can really help us out by leaving a review or rating on whatever platform you listen to. But that is it for us. Thank you guys again, and we will see you guys next time.